Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. Over the last 20 years, our politics has become more polarized and more partisan. But today, this polarization feels more intense, more personal, and more intractable than ever. Here in Washington, it's not easy being a moderate. We've seen one heck of a lot of paralysis in government. There are so many other issues where we could make a difference and help bridge the partisan divide that so often ends in gridlock. Can't you just get along? We like to see you work together. And I think a lot of independents need to know that they can invest their vote into in the Democratic Party in 2020 if we appeal to the middle, middle of the road. There's ideological rigidity on both sides. What I've said that we need are fanatical moderates. We've never seen anything like this before. And throughout the country, moderate voters are feeling the same. This is Mark from Beaverton, Oregon, and I consider myself a moderate Democrat. I prefer establishing consensus in society, but the folly of only one party being accommodating is becoming painfully clear. My name is Karen Bryant, and I live in Gaylord, Michigan. I am a Democrat and consider my views as politically moderate, but I feel the younger Democrats on the rise are far too left. They're more like socialists. This is Ellen from Skipback, Pennsylvania, and yes, I consider myself a moderate. I feel both the Democratic and Republican parties are moving too far to their respective lefts and rights, and neither party captures my full interest. Bob from Brooklyn, New York. I'm a moderate Democrat. I feel completely left out of the political dialogue. Uh, the Democrats are not addressing affordable health care, and they're, they're putting their priorities on identity politics. Hi, my name's Tiffany, and I'm from Lexington, South Carolina. I grew up my entire life being a Republican, and it's really hard because all of a sudden you find you don't have a home. I'm Amy Walter, and today on The Takeaway, we're asking, what's a moderate to do? My first guest is a man who finds himself boxed out of a party he once ran. From 2009 to 2011, Michael Steele was head of the Republican National Committee. Before that, he served as lieutenant governor of Maryland, not exactly a deep red state. And today, he's a contributor to MSNBC where he's often criticizing the president. I'm a conservative. It's hard, hard, as hard as it is to believe, I am very much a conservative, a very strong proponent of the Second Amendment and, and gun rights, even though I don't own a weapon. That's the libertarian side of my nature, and uh, very pro-life. Just to go through the, the box, checks the box that most conservatives oftentimes check. Certainly on the economic stuff, I, I've been apoplectic about the level of uh, debt and spending that Republicans have engaged in over the last uh, 20 years or so. I identify as a Lincoln Republican. I believe, first and foremost, about and in the founding principles of the party, which was all about the individual. Today, Steele says the party's heading in a different direction. In his words, it's virtually unidentifiable. You can be a Republican and not a conservative, and you can be a conservative and not a Republican. And in this space, we kind of equate the two, and yet they really aren't the same thing. And uh, conservatism is what you may be inside the Republican Party. Um, Republican is what you are outside of conservatism. You know, it depends. That's always, for me, been a strength that has long since sort of gone the way of the dodo inside the GOP. And we've gotten into these roiling battles over identity. Uh, and that was something that Trump took advantage of, quite honestly. A guy who had no roots in the party, who even on a good day pretended to be what he wasn't in terms of conservative versus Republican, uh, and yet was able to, I think, scratch open some of those wounds and, and pour a little vinegar in there and get things roiled up to the point that we now find the party virtually unidentifiable compared to where it was. So how do you then define the term moderate Republican? And is it different 
today to be a moderate Republican than it was 10 years ago, well, five years ago, a year that's ago? That's a great question because a moderate Republican today is a Reagan conservative 25, 30 years ago. If somebody defines you and says, well, that guy, that Michael Steele guy, he's a moderate. I, know. I, I, I see him I, on MSNBC. I start and laughing, he, yeah. Okay, so you don't find yourself no, in that category. No, I don't. But it, the, the circle has gotten so crazy and come around so much that that conservatism is viewed, what I would call traditional conservatism, is now viewed as a moderate. The key thing about conservatism in the in the Republican Party, just taking those two tracks and, and, and linking them, is at the end of the day, the party was always about, again, the individual. So we didn't stand in the way of immigration. We weren't about building walls. We were about assimilation. We were the party that argued for assimilation. Uh, we were not anti-science and anti-environmentals, but we, in fact, created the space for environmentalism to take a hold because of our fear that certain forces and powers and interests in the country would overshadow and consume that environment to the detriment of the people, which is why Teddy Roosevelt, last time I checked, card-carrying Republican, advocated the way he did and created the safe space, to use that term, for our natural environment. So, when I look at that, and don't even get me started on civil rights, for heaven's sakes, you know, as we sit here with the Voting Rights Act sitting in the desk drawer of the Speaker, um, we were the party that advocated and pushed those agendas. And that was a conservative thing to do because it conserved the rights of the people. So when did that change? When did that become uh, known as being a mushy, moderate, somebody who was less conservative and that conservatism is defined as being opposed to all of those things. When we ad adopted levels of extremism that were founded in fear, founded in racism, founded in anti-intellectualism. Look, I don't pretend to be the smartest guy in any room I'm in. I'm just a guy in a room who's at least learned enough through books and common sense to have a conversation. All right, And that was something that um, was okay Today, that's a threat for some reason to when people. When did that start, you know, do you so think? That's, you know, I, I think there were a number of cultural things that began to occur where people, in looking around at themselves and their communities, some people felt, well, how did he get ahead of me in line? And why are all these other people here that I don't know who look, don't look like me sound like, who are these people? People began to forget that America was not a white nation. <laughs> Actually, America, America was a place of color before the white man showed up, <laughs> lest we not understand and appreciate our history. So they look around, and I listen to white nationalists now talking about taking their country back. I'm like, well, we're going to take it back. You need to give it to Native Americans because not even you belong here. And it, it's, again, this lack of intellectual appreciation. You know, I'm not saying you've got to be smart and, and learn it in encyclopedic knowledge, but you do have to have an un understanding and appreciation of how this great nation was formed and why it was formed and appreciate sometimes the ugliness of that formation and not lose sight of that. And I think a lot of people have, and it has become, Donald Trump is a perfect reflection of this era. It's all about me. I'm I'm under threat. I'm you know you're thinking bad about me. I, I disagree with you because I don't like you, not because you're wrong on the facts or the points of law or whatever. So you've saw this. I think you've seen this sort of slow degradation, this slow clawing back to an era that, quite honestly, didn't exist. When I hear people at Trump rallies talk about, you know, we want to go back to a, a better time, we want to go back to a different America, I'm like, what America do you exactly have in mind? Well, <laughs> don't you know the America they think they, of course they have I in do. mind? They have this idealized view of the 1950s. That's right. I mean, the 50s were great. I was born in the 50s. It was a great time, right? But... When I was growing up, my mom couldn't take me to certain places here in Washington, D.C., where we lived, and I grew up here in the, in the city. When I went to high school, it was a big deal that whites and blacks in the 1970s were in a classroom together. And this is, what, 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education, and people are still having an issue. We had a huge busing 
uh, fiasco in Prince George's County, where I now live today, back in 1973, where residents had to sue to integrate the schools. So, you know, exactly what time are you talking about? That was great. And I would say even for white folks, it wasn't that great. Just talk to the people who live in Appalachia, you know, and, and lived in parts of the South. So we have this idealized version, this leave it to beaver notion of what, what it is to be white in America, which isn't even realistic for white folks. <laughs> so. so where does this, I get asked this question a lot in audiences from people who raise their hand and they say, I feel like I don't know where I belong politically. I agree with some parts right. of Democrat, Republican agenda, mm-hmm. but I kind of consider myself a moderate. I don't have a home because neither party seems to want me. In the Do main, you think that's true? Yeah, I think it is true. I think it's very true. And I think in the main, most people, I think the country is largely a center-right country. It is centrist on most social issues, which is why we've seen a lot of people interpret it as this sort of progressive liberal lurch to the left. No, it is basically the way Americans come to a point where they go, okay, I get all the pieces and this works. We're in a good space on marriage, gay marriage, for example, or on other hot topics. Even even something as profoundly frustrating and, and, and tension-filled as abortion, the country has largely settled. And so to the great wisdom of our founding fathers and mothers, um, because you know when those gentlemen went back home, there was a woman saying, so what'd you do today? <laughs> <laughs> nah, we're not doing that. No, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So we, we know how this narrative plays out. But in the great wisdom of that, this idea of self-governance uh, was ultimately left up to us. And people f- find comfort in that, where they can, at the local level, decide on these big issues, as we've seen. So I think people find themselves in this sort of center-right space. And the right portion, the more conservative approach, is when it comes to things like money and spending and taxes. They don't want the government to be overly aggressive and take more than it absolutely needs or should be allowed. They don't want to saddle future generations with debt and a lack of access to prosperity. So there is that. You can then make also the case it's center-left for the same reasons. If you want to go, well, okay, on those social issues, we tend to be a little bit more left-leaning. So the country pretty much is in that center space already. So why isn't Washington there? Because the parties have polarized it. The parties have gerrymandered themselves into a space where it's tribalism works. You know, you know, Amy and Michael live in a neighborhood. We, we're comfortable in that. That's why we're in that neighborhood. So our expectation is that neighborhood is going to reflect our values, how that neighborhood is perceived, how it communicates. We're all good with that. And we, we feed that. We help create that. If someone moves into this neighborhood that sort of throws things off kilter, a little bit disruptive, the hair on the back of our neck stands up. We become a little bit defensive. We become reactive. And we see that. We used to talk about it in in PTA meetings, you know. Now it's grown outside of the confines of something like that into a broader um, environment in which it is very tribal. It is very much about me, mine, ours here in this corner. I don't care what you do over in your corner, but in this corner, this is what we do. And the strength of this country has always been about the connectedness of communities, not the isolation of communities, which is why even in some of our more turbulent immigration periods in the turn of the last century, for example, where certain communities were forced into, quote, ghettos, over time, you were still able to make that connection to the broader American society and do that wonderful thing called assimilation. No one stood in the way of that, which is why it worked. Today, people stand in the way of that assimilation, whether it's assimilation through immigration, assimilation through education, assimilation through wealth creation, assimilation through cultural changes. We don't want to assimilate because I like my tribe the way it is. And that, I think, has undermined one of the core values of this country, which made it that shining light on that hill uh, for all to see. So how do we get to a place where if we are a country that is, as you said, center right, center left, that that's where most people feel the most comfortable. 
Are you at all optimistic that we can have a political system that reflects that? Yes, two things. One, the moment the American people realize the three most important words in our founding documents were we the people. It is the linchpin, the key, the cornerstone to everything else that follows. But isn't that what got us to where we are now? My definition of we the people might be different from your definition of we the people. It may be on the edges, but it can't be at the core. Because at the core, it is about us. Out of many, one. It's about us. All right? Us. U.S. Us. Community. And and so the moment we understand that we are empowered by this ideal of we the people, we get to decide. There is no federal government unless we allow it to exist. The second point, the moment we decide we're done with that, that's when it changes. And the way you change it is at the ballot box. You get out and you vote. I know this firsthand. We changed the the focus and the nature of our political landscape in 2010. We went out and did the very thing. We made the case to the American people, which is why I called it Fire Pelosi. And I used it not just as, oh, gee, uh, getting you know Nancy Pelosi out of the speakership, but it became a euphemism for government. She became the symbol of government. And the question is, if you're tired of what government is doing, change it. So here's what's happened, Michael. This is what I've noticed over these past years that I've been in Washington. Whenever you have elections like 2010 or 2006, the victims, the people who lose in those years, are the very people who want to try to bridge the gaps. They're the so-called moderates. Mm -hmm. In 2006, it was Republicans who lived in the Northeast. Now they're no longer there. They were wiped out in that wave election when Democrats won. In 2010, your party wiped out all the Southern moderate Democrats. And so what we're left with is each party wins an election, but when you win, you lose the very people in the middle who can help to bridge the divide between the two parties. Do you really think you lose them? Where'd they go? I'll give you a great example. Mm -hmm. In 2010, you picked up the seat held by John Spratt in Mm -hmm. South Carolina, Mm -hmm. replaced by Mick Mulvaney. Mm -hmm. That is not somebody who's particularly interested in bipartisanship, would you say? Fair point. But that's not how he ran then. That's how he is governing or acting now. And that's the problem. Okay, so So you're saying we could have replaced moderate Democrats with moderate Republicans. Right. Okay, so let me give you an example, Amy. Every four years, what do... do, I mean, I don't know how strong I can use my get my language here. You can do whatever you want. So so every four years, Republicans bitch about what? Oh, guess who we just nominated? They bitched about Bob Dole. They bitched about Mitt Romney. They bitched about John McCain, right? Do you think the only people voting in a Republican primary are the hard right conservatives? Where where are all those other folks? So if you sit on if you sit on your ass and and let the outcome uh, become self fulfilling, that's on you. That's on you. Same on the left. Everybody's whining about progressive. You know, where are traditional Democrats? Well, traditional Democrats are where they've always been. So the question is, do they turn out or have their political philosophies and perspectives changed to the point where they now have acceded to or agree with this more progressive movement? Or have they retrenched to the point where they're just sitting in the corner afraid of their own shadow? Politics is a a blood sport. It is always a sport in which you have to engage. You cannot just sit back and expect the outcome to meet your expectations if you don't. So for for my moderate friends out there, we the people, people up, man up, do your thing, get engaged. There are more of you, electorally speaking, than you have of these extreme wings. For people who are now raising their hand and saying, gosh, I don't feel so comfortable with where the country is. I don't feel like I fit with either party. It is, well, where were you when you were voting for these people? Right. Well, again, I use... The example that I'd I'd love beating people upside the head with because it tells the story of the 26th campaign. Donald Trump, would you say conservatively, alienated the hell out of women, minorities? I mean, the list is long. And yet he got 10% of the black vote, 30% of the Hispanic vote. Oh, and get this, 52% of educated white women voted for him. Here we are two years later, everybody's got, oh my God, how do we get here? I don't understand this. Wait a minute. Somebody voted for him. 
and if I get 10 white women of uh, with an educated background in the room, 5.2 out of the 10 of you voted for this brother. So you have to check what your priorities are. And you can't lament after the fact that someone else did it. <laughs> A, if you, in fact, voted that way. And then B, you didn't vote. So is there room then for somebody who considers themselves to be a moderate mm-hmm. in Congress? Yes. And can they play any bit of a role in Congress. Yes, they can. And there are efforts underway that's coalescing and creating the space for those members through organizations like the Bipartisan uh, Policy Center that is uh, working with members to craft legislation that would have bipartisan support out of the gate through No Labels, which actually has a coalition of members who have come together uh, and now are, are talking about, with respect to the next Speaker of the House, that they will not vote for that individual unless they can demonstrate support from the other side as well. I think that's good. I think that's healthy, and I think that is in keeping with the tradition of the House, for example. Because, again, the Speaker is a nonpartisan player in the House. He's the Speaker of the House. Theoretically. Theoretically. Speaks for both sides. That's why you have a majority leader who speaks for the majority party and a minority leader who speaks for the minority. Um, But you're absolutely right. We've moved away from that. So the play is in the House. The House is the ultimate reflection of the people because... We send them there to represent us. What you're going to see, I think, is over the next four to six years is a recycling that will occur as lines get redrawn. And, you know, I look at my own state of Maryland where when I was state party chairman, um, two years before I became lieutenant governor, our congressional delegation in a very liberal state like Maryland was 4-4. Four Republicans, four Democrats. Today, it's 7-1 seven Democrats to one Republican. And on, you know, we talk about on the right, but on the left, they drew those lines deliberately to disenfranchise those voters who would support a center-right candidate. Right. So redrawing districts, having nonpartisan line drawing could help revive the moderate. I applaud the thought and 100 percent behind it. There is no room for that that center to emerge. Um, So looking at that with uh, the kinds of uh, community-based commissions and structures that allow citizens to decide how the lines are drawn, along with the smart people who actually do line drawing, as opposed to the politicians who have a self-interest, to me, is how we begin to pull ourselves out of this morass. That's Michael Steele, former head of the RNC. The partisan divide in this country is growing, and people see their partisanship as almost as part of their identity. That's Carol Doherty. He's director of political research at Pew Research Center, and he's been tracking this phenomenon. And and that's not necessarily a positive thing. They don't necessarily have fondness for their own political party. It's more because of the negativity in politics and the negativity they feel towards the opposing party. How did we get to this place where our politics has become so polarized and partisan? We saw this trend start in the, in the mid-1990s, and it's been pronounced ever since. And it's to the point now where partisanship overwhelms other divisions in societies, demographic differences, gender, race, in in terms of political values. In other words, the differences over political values are much greater by along partisan lines than almost any other line that you, you can imagine. And so, you know, you see these greater divisions and and it's, you know, in our politics today, it's a binary choice. And so, you know, as we've seen, as you know, through most elections, 90 percent of Republicans vote Republican and 90 percent of Democrats vote Democrat. And that share has been increasing uh, each election. If we look back in history, where was a time when the percentage of people who would be willing to split their ticket to say vote for a Democrat? in one election, vote for a Republican in another. What was sort of the heyday, and when did that start to decline? Certainly, uh, the political scientists say the ticket splitting has been uh, has been in decline for quite a while now. It's hard to know when the heyday was. 
but one of the m- metrics to use is the percentage of out-party people who have a favorable view of the president. In other words, if I'm a Republican, did I approve of Barack Obama's job approval? And we've tracked that all the way back to the 1950s. And at that time, you had 49%, nearly half of Democrats, on average during Eisenhower's term, who was a Republican, saying they approved of of, uh, his job performance. And today, you have 7% of Democrats, on average since Trump was elected, uh, saying they approve of his job performance. This 7% isn't unique to Trump. Well, Obama well, it's had... The lowest, it's the lowest it's l- out-party approval ever, but mm-hmm. the trend, you're right, the trend has been evident for the past several presidents, including Obama and Bush, and they really, it, it really intensified during those two uh, presidencies. I know your specialty is looking at the trend for where we've been, but think about where we're headed Given all the numbers that you've put in front of us, it sure seems unlikely for me to believe that we're going to see a rise in support for a candidate, either running for president on the Republican side or the Democratic side, who embraces this, I'm going to compromise and I'm going to take a moderate both temperament, tone and ideological positioning. It's always difficult to predict to do these sorts of things in politics. And, and you know, there's a, there's a belief out there, and I know I hear it all the time, that isn't the American public tired of this in the sense that they've seen this partisanship on one side and another for years and years and years. What isn't the natural kind of pushback to that to, to pick more moderate or candidates who compromise. But it, at this point, the, the sort of tit for tat trend in politics is also very powerful in the sense that, you know, you hear a lot of Democrats today during the Kavanaugh nomination. They remember what happened to Merrick Garland. They remember what happened to their nominees. And so then there's a desire then to try to block this nominee and it goes on. And so, you know, while there is a fatigue, I think, out there, it's it's very difficult to break this cycle. Carol Doherty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. All hour, we've been talking about what it's like to be a political moderate, someone willing to compromise in a political environment that rewards conflict. I wanted to talk to someone who's really lived this. So I sat down with former Congressman John Tanner. Tanner represented a district in western Tennessee for 22 years. He described the founding of the Blue Dog Democrats back in 1995 after his party lost 52 seats in that midterm election. Some of the uh, members of the Democratic caucus were further to the left than we were comfortable with on budgetary matters, the national debt, and so forth. And the Republicans were much further to the right on some of the social issues than we were comfortable with. And so we decided that we would try to form a caucus that expressed that sentiment. You put this together in the wake of Democrats' big defeat in the 1994 midterm elections. And so was it a reaction to losing control of Congress that year? Partially. And also, uh, when we started, uh, we had Republicans uh, meeting with us. And my recollection is that Speaker Gingrich and uh, I think at that time, Tom DeLay maybe was a whip, found out about it. And uh, I don't know what happened, but the Republicans quit coming to our our meetings. We were trying to form a centrist group to uh, see if we could bridge a divide, uh, so to speak, uh, and try to get something done in the country. Do you still consider yourself to be a moderate? 
Well, I don't know. I, I try to. We admire moderation in most aspects of life. I mean, you can eat a steak one night a week. You eat a steak seven nights a week. You're that's not good. Moderation is is considered, and, and good manners is considered to be an asset in most places. But when we get to politics, somebody says they're moderate. Oh, that's squishy. They don't stand for anything. And no, they stand for good government and reasonable solutions to problems that the country faces instead of trying to jam it down a Democrat's throat and Democrats get it, jam it down a Republican's throat. That, to me, is, is uh, not, not uh, particularly uh, appetizing. Were you treated that way when you were in Congress by your, some people in your own party that he's kind of squishy, we can't really trust him, he's not a real Democrat? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. how would that come out? How would that... What form would that take? We would, I would argue with and say, uh, actually, uh, some of the blue dogs are better Democrats than people. It's not, it's not particularly hard to be a Democrat when you're in a D plus 30 uh, district. That's easy. When you're in an R plus 9 district and you're a D, that's a little tougher. Are you worried that the Democratic Party moves so far over to the left that they make it very hard for somebody that w came from your part of the country or mm -hmm. that comes from your political background to be part of that caucus? If that happens, then I can foresee a third party emerging from the ruins of, of both parties because if one accepts the premise that the far left and the far right are so uh, entrenched in their ideas and so convinced of the wisdom and virtue of their positions on everything. Then there was a lot of people in the, between the 30-yard lines that will not be comfortable either place, and they'll look for somewhere to go. And so that's, that's where the country, I think, will, will go because we've always been able to, to change and adapt to differing circumstances as long as the one party or the other is has a place for moderates, I think you hold the two-party system. But when the moderates are uh, rhinos, they call them Republicans, and they, they, they've been castigated and shoved out. And if the far left does the same thing with people, blue dog type people too, then I think you'll see a third party emerge. Could you support something like that? I wouldn't say I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman John Tanner served in the U.S. House from 1989 to The Takeaway is supported by Progressive Insurance, offering its Home Quote Explorer, designed to provide information about available home insurance options in one place. More information at Progressive.com. We end the hour with three political strategists, two Democrats and one Republican, who've worked or are still working with politicians who were willing to meet in the middle and compromise. First, I asked them all, what does it mean to be a moderate? Together, moderates generally want to work across the aisle to solve problems. That's Helen Milby, and she's the uh, founder of the New Deal, which is a state and local network of 160 elected officials around the country, pro-growth progressives, as well as the New Democrat Coalition PAC uh, fundraiser. Republican John Murray, former deputy chief of staff to Republican Majority Leader Eric Cantor, gave us this definition. I think it's this notion of temperament and tone and the idea that you can disagree without being disagreeable. And certainly in today's hyperkinetic press coverage and uh, political infrastructure, that's become a very, very difficult thing to achieve. And we're also joined by Bruce Reed, co-founder of a bipartisan ideas firm called Civic, former chief of staff to Joe Biden and domestic policy advisor to Bill Clinton. And Bruce says, I agree with their general definition of it. I've never liked the term. I don't think it means anything, actually. I think a lot of the ideological labels are kind of out the window at the moment. We live in immoderate times. We have the most divisive radical president we've ever had. And I think there's probably a lot of agreement in both parties that whatever moderate is, it's not that. 
When did that term become a dirty word, the term being a moderate or being in the middle or being willing to compromise? And I'm going to read something. This is from Elizabeth Warren, her speech that she gave last summer at Netroots Nation, and it's addressing topics that you know um, very well in your time in the Bill Clinton White House. And she said, apparently the path forward is to go back to locking up nonviolent drug offenders and ripping more holes in our economic safety net. The Democratic Party isn't going to go back to the days of welfare reform and the crime bill. We aren't the gate crashers of today's Democratic Party. We're not a wing of today's Democratic Party. We are the heart Heart and soul of the Democratic Party. So I want you to to react to that, because basically what she is saying is the stuff that was sort of the core essential DNA, I guess, of the Clinton administration or what their top achievements now are something to be ashamed of. And that in order for the Democratic Party to go forward, we have to sort of she doesn't say this, but it seems like we got to purge that from (laughs) our party. Well, I don't think moderate is a dirty word. I think the Democratic Party should always aspire to be as big a tent as it can possibly be. Every movement has a healthy debate about what the priorities of progress should be, what the pace should be, how important is it to bring the country along with you. And I think that's a good debate to have. So you don't see it Uh, as like a repudiation of who the Democratic Party was and who it should be now? I, I don't know. It's certainly not a fair description of, of what the Clinton administration accomplished. Uh, John may disagree, but, you know, I think the Republican Party's done a pretty good job of becoming the party of closed minds, the over my dead body caucus. We're the party of yes, we can. We want to get things done. And if you're going to do that, you got to be open to a, a range of views. You got to deliver results. It's easy for them. They just want to stop government from working. We actually need to build a working majority, a governing majority to get things done and uh, expand our appeal, not narrow it. John, I'll let you jump in, but Helen, I want you to respond. I mean, I completely agree with that. It's about governing. It's about solving problems. Someone told me, you know, potholes don't have a party, you know, they just need to be fixed. And, uh, and I think people want a government that works for them. And I'm hoping that the Democrats will you know, get more seats and and become that party that leads, because I think that we agree on 85, 95% of everything that we do about a just and tolerant society, which is great, but we also have to solve problems and make sure there's a a future with jobs and people have choices and opportunities. So when you saw one of your own New Democrat members, Joe Crowley, defeated in a primary by someone running to his left— What does that tell us about the state of the Democratic Party and their willingness within primaries to tolerate or to embrace members who fit into a more moderate mold? Well, I go back to the big tent moment that that Bruce uh, mentioned to me. That's critical. I think Joe Crowley kind of was country over party, to be honest, and country over his own seat. He decided that to invest some time outside of his district in order to help maybe get a majority that can then hopefully fight some of the Trump wackiness. (laughs) John, I want you to weigh in here because you worked for a member of Congress who was also in leadership, Republican leadership, Eric Cantor, who I think we could look at on a scale, ideological scale, we would say this is a pretty conservative Republican. And yet he was ousted in a primary from someone running to his right. There were conservative pundits and the talk radio community that said Eric Cantor needed to be booted from his seat because he was too moderate on immigration, because he was working on compromise on immigration. What did what did you learn about that? And what does that tell us about the prospect of ever getting bipartisan reform on some of these big issues? You know, on immigration, uh, I remember a day where we were, frankly, being protested on the right for being too soft and on the left for, you know, not doing enough. And there is no zero-sum game when you are working on a piece of legislation. You have to find a way to bring people together, whether it's your own conference or, or across the aisle. But the expectations game that talk radio uh, and some of the blog world at that time and, frankly, the, the new emergence of outside money to influence races, those all played a very, very 
very significant role in limiting or certainly diminishing the ability of leadership and others in the party to find a, a solution uh, to move forward. And, and I remember as well uh, when we were in talks uh, with Vice President Biden the summer where we were dealing with the spending cut issue. And what I always appreciated about him was he would come to these meetings and say, let's not talk about all the things we don't agree on. Let's talk about the things that we do. And I think the that concept, that idea has gone a, a, a long, long way out of the political system and the policymaking process to the detriment of finding those outcomes. And so, you know, my hope would be that if uh, the Democrats uh, have the opportunity to to lead the House, let's say, um, that their first act is not to take the impeachment vote to the floor, but to try to talk about ways to continue the strong economic growth and and low unemployment that we're seeing today, and perhaps some of that is around bipartisan ideas to do that. Bruce, I I remember back in the Clinton era when a bill like NAFTA came to the floor, and it actually got about 100 Democrats and 100 and something Republicans. Do you think that's at all possible anymore that you could actually pass a piece of legislation where the same number of Democrats and Republicans are supporting it? I, I think it's possible on some issues where there aren't clear ideological divisions. You know. But is that even true anymore? Like, had a, I, just, had, I just kind of feel like we now live in the zero-sum environment where back when you were at the White House, it was, how can we cobble together 218 votes? And it you could actually look over to the Republican side and say, okay, we can have some of these folks, we're going to lose some of our Dems, and this is how we get to 218. Now we're to a place where it's all about how can I get 218 people from my own party? How does that change? Yeah, well, I guess I'll say two things on that. The first is, I do think that Holding Donald Trump accountable, holding his administration accountable is the number one job for Democrats if they take back the House and or the Senate. And I don't think the rule of law is an ideological issue. There's no point in winning back the House to simply try to do business with Donald Trump, who has in his first year and a half demonstrated he has absolutely no interest in doing business with our party and barely any interest in doing business with his. Now, the second point is I do think that in our political system in Washington, it only works if the president is willing to stick his neck out and lead the way. It's impossible to be uh, bipartisan if the president isn't willing to take that risk. Do you think Obama was willing to stick his neck out? Uh, he tried. I mean, I think both Clinton and Obama found that on economic issues, that anything that involved taxes, on health care, that there wasn't a single Republican vote to be had, no matter how how much an, an outstretched hand was offered. I have a lot of sympathy for John for having dealt with and survived the House Republican Caucus, which I think may, may be the beginning of all evil in, in our current political environment. John, <laughs> you're the beginning Ouch. of all evil. <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about you that? Know, I will say that certainly during our tenure, there was a genuine attempt for us to try to find some ways to work together. I, I remember the first meeting uh, when President Obama came to the Hill. We had it over in the Senate. It was uh, House and Senate leadership along with the president. And we talked about the stimulus bill. And Eric asked if we could bring ideas to the White House uh, for the subsequent meeting. And the president said yes. And we thought, uh, wow, that's a great start. Unfortunately, uh, subsequent to that, we were not able to find a way uh, to come together on some of the ideas that our conference was willing to support. But I guess what I would say is there are two sides to the coin of not working together. At the end of the day, we've been elected to get things done on behalf of the people that elected us. And the idea that we're not doing that or not even sort of finding a way to do it, uh, even if it's hard because it is – seems to be contrary to the point of even being elected in the first place. And for me, that's sort of a fundamental question is, you know, you, you go to Washington, the work is hard, you spend your time there away from your family, you invest a lot of your life in that. I would think you'd want to walk out of there with accomplishment and achievement. But, you know, there are times where 
it seems like that road is is not the one that that both parties, uh, frankly, some days are on. My criticism was not aimed at either John Boehner or Eric Cantor, who tried. Uh, mine was at the caucus for giving them such a short leash and for running Congressman Cantor out of office for not being conservative enough. I mean, that's crazy. And so what do you see now, and Helen, I'll, I'll start with you, about the possibility that that same dynamic plays out on the Democratic side. You're already hearing about many Democrats saying they don't want Leader Pelosi or they won't vote for her if they win enough seats to get control of the House. So Pelosi, not a speaker. Is there a potential that Democrats go and do the same, which is they run their leaders out unless their leaders are doing exactly what they want them to do? It depends upon who wins these races around the country and, and what the caucus looks like when we get here for those votes. Um, many of the people I talk to on the Hill really do believe in this bigger tent um, that we can't, you know, kind of chase out the moderates and, and primary them to be like more, pure. quote unquote, pure. But I don't yeah. really know what pure means, to be honest. I don't love that term either, like moderate, pure, liberal. Again, I just want our Democratic Party to move forward, to find these great ideas to break through the chaos and to make sure that we are doing the jobs. They are doing the job that they're paid to do. But the overall sense that the parties each have this litmus test on purity, an ideological purity, how much of a worry do you have that Democrats are going to fall into this same problem? I definitely worry about it and every day. And I, again, worry about the money in politics, too, as, you know, John and, and Bruce also talked about, you know, the amount of money that's flowing in from the more extreme pieces of the party, mostly for single issues sometimes. I mean, that does not help the interest of, you know, these pragmatic, you know, solutions-oriented folks in the middle that sometimes don't have one issue that drives all others. Or So is this know, coming then from the outside? You and John seem to be saying the same thing, which is, what is really stirring up these members isn't that it comes from where they sit personally in terms of how they might define themselves personally, but the incentive structure and the outside pressure from these dark money or other groups, these individuals sort of make it difficult to be the person that they want to be. I think I agree with that. I also know that everyone says, oh, I like my congressperson, my congresswoman, but the rest of the party is broken or corrupt or whatever it is. So, you know, sometimes the member themselves are kind of safe within their own district, but the party itself gets a bad rap. But I, I mean, the amount of money that does flow in from these dark sources is is pretty brutal when you're trying to figure out how to save your own seat and to do some solutions when people are not calling you a good Democrat or calling you not pure enough, even though you are a great Democrat and you're there for the same reasons that they are, just maybe a few different policy ideas of how to get to some of those goals. And John, we've talked about this in the past, but if, if you had a secret vote within the Republican conference about giving DREAMers permanent status or getting an immigration reform bill, and it were a vote that, again, it would be... <laughs> A secret ballot. Nobody would know who voted on it. Would you agree that Republicans would pass something? Two things. And one, just to sort of riff off what Helen said, you know, part of the challenge, and you live this all the time, Amy, is the districts themselves. And we've sort of jointly negotiated, meaning Democrats and Republicans, our own pain cave on these districts by saying, now you're going to take all these people that are Democrats, and we're going to take all the people that are Republican, and we'll both be in great seats, and won't that be awesome? And of course, the outcome of that is you only care about your primary, and it's all about sort of who can be the most crazy train when they are running from the extreme. And then you bring in the outside money and the talk radio world and all the rest, and you get this ecosystem that only supports and reinforces the most extreme behavior. And I would say social has now doubled down on that. I mean, extreme rhetoric and, and behavior. Um, to, on the immigration issue, from our perspective, and Eric said this all the time, particularly on the dreamer issue, we should not be punishing uh, children for the acts of their parents. And we should be a compassionate 
country that's trying to find the right way to both solve uh, the dreamers issue and then take on this bigger question of immigration. And, you know, I think that there was a strong support within the conference to try to find that path forward. Uh, But if you uh, talked about that as a rank and file member, certainly in Washington, you could be assured that when you got home, you'd have a riot at your front door uh, and the talk radio and social space uh, would be, you know, red hot uh, that you were soft on all these things and, you know, amnesty and the rest, which was not what the conversation was at all, nor what the policies were at all. So I think until we can get members on both sides to feel like they can have an honest policy conversation and not have that turn into a uh, a riot in their front yard, it's going to be very hard. Bruce, I'm going to ask the last question to you, which is how optimistic are you about where we're going with our politics? I hear more and more from people that I talk to this frustration they have that neither party seems to get them, that they have to choose one extreme or the other extreme. There's nobody really talking to them in the middle. Are you optimistic that we're going to find that place for them? Or is this kind of where we're going to be for the foreseeable future, this sort of zero-sum game of politics where we just move further and further to our corners and find it harder and harder to meet in the middle? I'm long-term optimistic. I think the current state of our politics does not reflect the DNA of the American people. I think Washington and the political debate is far more divided than Americans are themselves. And I think if we were talking about how are states doing, how, how are governors governing, it'd be a, different, a whole different story than what we've just discussed. You've got successful Republican governors in blue states. You have Democrats looking like they'll make inroads in some red and purple states. I'd say the biggest problem with Washington is that it's on a, you know, with uh, a, a few exceptions, a sort of 20-year losing streak of being able to work together across party lines, despite considerable efforts, particularly by President Obama, to try to change the tone in Washington. And uh, the longer that goes on, the easier it is to get in a rut. The framers did not design the House of Representatives to be the check against factions. Um, it's the it's the cup uh, that boils over, and it's done an excellent job of that in recent years. But I think, you know, once we get we get past our current uh, nightmare that Americans have a right to expect a lot more from their elected leaders, and they'll keep throwing out the bums until they get it. It's easy to get depressed about the current state of political discourse and to assume that it's always going to be this way. But there are reasons to be optimistic. Political reforms like independent redistricting commissions can help. Making districts more competitive means politicians have to balance the needs of both sides, not just those on the blue or the red team. But reform only gets us so far. In the end, politics follows voters. If people who feel left out of the conversation stay on the sidelines, well, that's where their concerns will stay too. If we want our politicians to compromise, then we have to reward them for it by turning out and voting for them. And this November, you have the chance to do just that. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Takeaway. <laughs> Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you.